I'm Dr. Scott Stripling from the Bible Seminary. I'm excited to be here today at the Lanier Theological Library teaching our Archaeology 510 Ceramic Typology course. And I have three of our students here with me. On my left is Jordan McClinton, and on my right is Shelly Neese, and then on the far end is Tommy Chamberlain. And uh, these guys are some of our awesome TBS students that are studying the material culture from the land of the Bible. And we're going to tell you about some of the things that we're uh, working with. You can see pottery all around us on all these tables. And this uh, pottery goes from time periods from as early as the early Bronze Age. This is as much as 4,500 years ago. Uh, up through the Islamic period. And what we're learning how to do, and they're do actually doing a great job, is learning how to differentiate the characteristics of the pottery in, uh, in each time period. So uh, we wanna welcome you guys into our classroom here today at the awesome Lanier Theological Library. And uh, Tommy, I wanna ask you to tell us a little bit about the World of Jesus exhibit and some of the cool things that we've been doing with that. Well, for a few years now, we have been uh, working with a small traveling exhibit that we created, the partnership through TBS, the University of Pikeville and ABR called the World of Jesus. Uh, we have about 80 artifacts dating from the first century where we try to illuminate the time of the New Testament and bring the accounts of the Gospels to life. Uh, it has traveled various places from Kentucky to Texas to Michigan and Illinois. Uh, and so uh, it's been something we're very proud to be part of. And one of the things I'm very uh, glad to see with this project is it's mainly student created. That's right. And, you know, Tommy has led the way on this, but also Abigail Levitt is not here today. She played a, a key role. And then I kind of got to be director emeritus. So, you know, I didn't really do any work, but I got to take credit for the good stuff that you guys are doing. Proud of, provided a lot of guidance well. <laughs> and correction when needed. So. Yeah. So, uh, Tommy, you want to uh, tell us about some of the artifacts? Or sure. Either? Well, why don't we talk about a few of the artifacts that are on display and been traveling with World of Jesus. And we'll talk about one of my personal favorites. We're going to talk about first century stone vessels uh, that are very unique. These uh, vessels were used in Jewish areas from about mid first century BC through the first century, ending or tapering off after the uh, Barcoba revolt, ending in 136 uh, AD. Now, what's interesting is these things came to life. Basically, uh, we first see them in archaeological record when uh, pottery, like Eastern Terracigelata ware, like this pottery shirt here begins to disappear, these things, stone vessels begin to appear. Now, we believe that uh, it appears very likely at this time that the desire for these stone vessels was because of a wave of ritual purity. Uh, they didn't want the foreign materials, but these materials made from Jerusalem area limestone uh, became very, very popular because we find in the Torah that if your pottery becomes impure, you must break it, says the Lord. Now, what's interesting is we find all of these things that become impure, but one thing there is no prescription against is stone vessels. So the logic follows that your stone vessels cannot become impure, so then let's use stone vessels. Now, one of my favorite pop history stories uh, is something we see in uh, History Channel, things of that nature now, and what was the Holy Grail? What is the quest for the Holy Grail? And, you know, a hero you may heard of named Indiana Jones goes looking for that thing. And I've heard Dr. Stripling say several times, you know, at the end of the movie, they really should have asked a real archaeologist. What type of cup uh, does someone in the early first century, what are they drinking from at an important meal like that? It's a Passover meal. 
What are they likely using? Well, it's almost certainly something that could not have become impure. So we believe Dr. Stripling proffers, and uh, I think it's a very exciting theory, that these stone vessels, a stone vessel mug like this, may have been what was passed at the Last Supper. That's awesome. Very cool. That's awesome. And what is this, Tommy? Ah, so we find a core. So for our viewers, you can see into the vessel. And one of the things archaeologists find are these cores, all right, that would be removed from the interior as they lay out the interior and make uh, this stone mug. So. Is there anything that could happen with that core? What, what, uh, what could someone do with that core, Tommy? <laughs> Well, that, there's lots of options, and I bet you're going to tell us. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, you find a lot of these cores, and they actually make smaller vessels out of That's this. Right. You've got the, the start of a smaller vessel that you can then core out of that and make a little smaller cup out of that, right? Yeah. And then we, we have actual debitage. When, you know, what's left over, we even collect that to try to understand the percentage of debitage to the percentage of vessels and so forth. So really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And um, Shelly, you've got something interesting you want to tell our, our viewers about. What's that? First, I'd like to disagree with Tommy. I, I've seen the Holy Grail. It's definitely solid gold and, <laughs> and bedazzled by jewels. So we'll agree to disagree there. <laughs> so this is part of Tommy's exhibit as well, or the, the um, what do we call it? The Jesus? World of Jesus. World of Jesus exhibit. And you might not have heard of debitage or stoneware before, but I'm pretty sure most people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a replica or a facsimile, facsimile of the book of Isaiah. And so don't send us any emails. We're not trying to pretend it's, it's a real Dead Sea Scroll. <laughs> but this is meant to just give you an idea of, of the authenticity of the documents and kind of in line with the stoneware that this would have been the same time period. We know, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the most important find. They always say it's the most important archeological find in the 20th century, but I think most people would agree, it's probably the most important find ever. And thousands of fragments put back together like puzzle pieces, probably encompassing somewhere between 900 and 1,000 different books. And just how the Jewish people were really concerned with purity with their stoneware or with their pottery or their eating vessels, they were also very concerned with their holy text. And if the Jewish people have bequeathed to us lots of things, but the most important thing is words. And so what we find with the Dead Sea Scrolls is this really, this idea that if a scroll that had the name of God, had yud heh Yahweh, it could not be thrown away in any traditional form. So the theory is, is that all 11, or now we actually know 12 of the Dead Sea Scroll caves were perhaps Genesis. They were special storage units for holy texts because all of the texts of the Bible were represented in the Dead Sea Scroll corpus, except for Esther, because it doesn't have the name of Yahweh. It has God's handprint all over it, but it doesn't specifically have yod heh vav -Heh. So that's what we think, and in terms of if there's any artifact that gives me just Pentecostal goosebumps, it would always be the Dead Sea Scrolls because this is our holy text. This is what we live by. This is what we use as our moral guidance and, and connection to our Savior. And Isaiah is in, you know, there was a lot of debate in, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found about how much the biblical text had been changed and altered, and even Messianic texts, how they had been re-altered to confirm Jesus' um, messiahship. And then we find a whole copy of the Isaiah scroll, just a gift to us all, a gift to Jews, a gift to Christians, and just confirmation that this is not text that was altered with, that this is text that was carefully passed down to us all. And so it's pretty cool to have a 
That's awesome, Shelley. Yeah, cool. You know, the, the books that Jesus quoted from most often were Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalms, but Isaiah most, most commonly. And so when we see this, you see a real connection, don't you, through your faith heritage. Um, a few feet from us here, maybe 50, 60 feet, is the Lanier Theological Library where there's an actual fragment of a Dead Sea Scroll there from uh, Amos chapter 7. So these are just really exciting things that, that we get to deal not, with. You're not allowed to have, you know, like favorite children or things, but you are allowed to have favorite prophets. So I feel like most people, Isaiah would be their favorite prophet. So the fact that that one got preserved, he's the prophet that was well loved in his own time. Most prophets were just kind of discovered to be holy after their prophecies came true. So with, with Isaiah, I feel like the whole world just let out a universal, oh, like I'm so glad it was him that we got the whole one for. Well, we'll get, a, get in a shout out for your book too. Shelley is the author of The Copper Scroll, which is just a fantastic book that our readers might be interested in, in picking up. And uh, Jordan, you've got something interesting to tell us about. So the, the, we call the, the exhibit The World of Jesus uh, because we, we focus everything around the first century. Uh, nothing in there is, is, is actually from uh, you know Jesus's life, obviously, but we, we try to focus everything around uh, the first century, around um, the time that Jesus would have lived and the things that he would have uh, been in contact with. And one of the most powerful things for me in this exhibit uh, was just the crucifixion section. Obviously, cruci the crucifixion of Jesus being the pinnacle of our faith. Uh, when Jesus uh, died for our, the atonement of our sins. And we have a few uh, items that kind of represent uh, the crucifixion. One of my favorites just being uh, just a Roman crucifixion nail. Um, and we note, no, this is an actual Roman uh, crucifixion nail uh, or could have been used for crucifixion. Um, we know that because we know the, di the, the, the uh, dimensions of a crucifixion nail, which is uh, 10.5 uh, inches. Centimeters. Centimeters. Centimeters, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're, we're in uh, metric, right? Not, <laughs> uh, 10.5 centimeters. And we know that because we have actually found, not us personally, but uh, there have been crucifixion victims that have been found with these nails still intact in uh, their feet, in their ankles. Uh, if you go to the, uh, the Israeli Museum or the uh, Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you'll find a great uh, uh, example of uh, a crucifixion victim named Johannes uh, with the crucifixion nail still in his heel. Um, so just again, an incredible, um, just visual depiction of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, and as we, we, we kind of witness uh, the time period that he lived in, obviously get to see uh, just something as powerful as the implement that was used in the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, you know, here in Texas, country and western music is pretty popular. Absolutely. And there's been a number of country and western songs about three rusty nails. That's right. But uh, we have reason to believe, based on the Johannan uh, example, that there may have been four nails that were used in the crucifixion with the, the beam between the feet and the nailing from the outside in. So this is where archaeologist Tommy used the term illuminates the biblical text. It doesn't change it, but right. it, it just sheds light on it so that we can understand it better. Sure. No one's going to lose their salvation if it's no. three versus four right. nails. <laughs> no, no, but they may have to rewrite a, the verse of their song. Change their art, yeah. You know, we have another example. The last of the Hasmonean or Maccabean rulers was uh, was crucified. And of course, Herod the Great, uh, he got crossways with Herod the Great, which was not a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the same size now, 10.5 centimeters, but it was found in his, in his uh, wrist. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, we have the Yohanan example, then we have another one. So I think we can be pretty certain about that. And I wanted to tell you guys about this artifact, and this is a little vial that is typical of the first century. It's flat on the bottom, flared on the top, very, very finely made. And we call these tear bottles. And the, the story is that in the first century or late second temple period culture, that uh, young Jewish girls would carry these. Starting at about age 12, they would carry these and they had a, a stopper in them because there was some evaporation, but these were to gather tears. Now, Shelly, you never know when a good cry is gonna come on you, okay? At so, any moment. So like if one, if one were to- I can feel one working up right now. <laughs> if, one, if one starts now, we're ready, okay? So you can, you can model this. So what you would do is you would capture your tears and of course, we even read in Psalms very early in Jewish history that God captures our tears in his bottle. So the idea is that these young ladies are capturing these tears throughout their lifetime. And as part of the marriage ceremony, uh, the ketubah, the marriage ceremony in the first century, she would present this to her husband as part of the ceremony. And yeah, so the idea, think about like, the, the kind good, of creepy, but also amazing. <laughs> well, it's weird that you think of the like the good tears and the bad tears. Yeah. I mean, we've experienced like times of exhilaration, and we've experienced times of hurt and betrayal and hardness. You know, hard tears, and the idea is that they all mix in together. And now, when she gives this to uh, her betrothed, she's saying to him essentially, um, "Here's all my past, and I'm not entering this marriage with any baggage. All right, uh -huh. so here's all my past, the good and the bad." And, and here it is. Or more cynically, I guess she could be saying that any tears from now on, buddy, are your fault, okay? <laughs> you, you caused these, because here's all of my We're past in this, in this bottle. Now here's where it gets really interesting. We read in the New Testament about a woman who comes to Jesus and she begins to wash his feet with her tears. Now we've all spent a lot of time in the Middle East and we know what you wear sandals in that culture, what your feet look like. Uh, it's not that she's crying enough tears to be able to wash his feet. I think when we understand this, it begins to come to light that this, this woman is, she probably was crying also, but she has poured out her tears on the feet of Jesus. And then what does she do next? The text says she lets her hair down and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. Well, goosebumps. I mean, just... well, but think about it this yeah. way. Long before Christian mingle, here's how here's how you yeah. knew you were available. All right. Yeah. So if you were single, then you wore your hair up. Yeah. Okay. You want to show us hair up? Everybody yeah. knows. Hair up. Okay. <laughs> and then so that means you're you're on the market. Okay. If it's up. Okay. If it's up. Okay. Hair down. You're off the market. You're either engaged or married. So this woman lets down her hair and she begins to dry the feet of Jesus. Now, non-verbally, she is communicating two very powerful things by pouring out her tears and letting down her hair. She's saying, everyone in that room, they didn't have to have it explained. We have to have it explained. They understood what she was saying. I'm committed to this man for the rest of my life. And that's a powerful message. And so, as we've seen from these artifacts, tear bottles and nails and stone vessels and Dead Sea Scrolls, as we study the material culture, it really gives us the ability to communicate cross-culturally and across multiple time periods. World of Jesus is available to travel to other locations. So if you're out there and you say, gosh, I would love to have that at my university, my seminary, my church, uh, you can contact TBS and they can put you in contact with me 
but you can directly contact me at exhibit at upike.edu. So that's currently available. But something we're really excited about that's in the works, and it'll be a little while, but we're looking to get there, is we're creating a project that TBS student created called Mysteries of the Bible. And we look to create a small exhibit about the same 80 artifacts all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And take a look at these things and where you will hear accounts from archaeology and the ancient world that illuminate the scripture, that bring the scripture to life, like some of the examples you heard today from the World of Jesus exhibit. All right. Very exciting. Awesome. Shalom. <laughs>